0: Hey, hello, welcome to Tales and Tactics Podcast. This is a podcast where we discuss the history of games, their impact, origins, and the systems that make them play. My name is Troy. With me is my friend, co-host, Max. Hey there. Also, we've got our producer with us, Jay. Hey, man, how you doing? So today we're going to be covering one of the classics. We're going in on original Dungeons & Dragons. This is the very original inception point for role-playing this is you know the start of the whole hobby and we're going to go through the process and break down this game with where it started where it ended up and what makes it so unique and what gave it the the history that it has um that we reflect back on today so we're going to go first into an opening where we'll describe a little bit more about the, the game itself and give you uh, an overview of what we're gonna be covering today. And first, I'll just let Max give us a little bit more detail.
1: Right, yeah, so uh, in our previous episode, we talked about Chainmail, which is one of the key components to getting to this topic. And uh, But I think it's important that we set up a few other things and kind of lay a, a bit of a timeline for how this game comes together. Uh, Because, essentially, Dungeons & Dragons is the seminal role-playing game for all role-playing games. I mean, it goes many places after that, but this is the sort of year zero moment where it all comes together. So, uh, Dungeons & Dragons is created by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. And it's important to understand how these two came to the point where they made their own game. And we won't go into a ton of detail, because... We could dedicate a whole episode to that story. For sure. But um, the sort of point-by-point version of that is um, Gary Gygax and Jeff Perrin create Chainmail, which introduces the idea of medieval wargaming. But inside that rule set are two key elements. One of them is man-to-man combat, which we discussed in the previous episode. And the other part is the introduction of fantasy elements. Now, this is all happening in the in the Lake Geneva area of Wisconsin, and that's its own, wouldn't call it an isolated community, but like unlike today with the internet, uh, information travels a lot slower. And you basically gradually get a bleed of one system to another. So the other part of this story takes place in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, and there's a separate group there where Dave Arneson is doing his thing and there's a lot of commonality like gary and and dave are into the same stuff uh they're also particularly both into an avalon hill game called gettysburg so they're already primed to be receptive to each other's information if if that makes sense
0: yeah i understand what you mean
1: so while the chainmail thing is coming together and gary's got his own friends Mm -hmm. that are kind of developing that in the twin cities uh that gaming group Forgotten the, the fella's name. Right. Uh, Dave uh, Wesley has come up with this particular style of game, which is based on Napoleonic Wargaming, which he calls a Bronstein or Bronstein. And it's unique in two ways, which should seem obvious to people who understand the elements of what makes a role-playing game, which is it's open-ended. So even though there are objectives set for the game, How those objectives are achieved is quite broad. The other thing is, and this is the key point from this, is that you play individual characters that may have influence over things like army units. But there's this unique element where essentially the first time they set up the Bronstein campaign, they had it based around a town, I believe called Bronstein, which is where it gets its name. And it was, I wouldn't call it a tournament game, but it was sort of a club setting. And so there was an invitation to come and play. And he had laid out all of these roles so that like, there was the mayor and a general and another general and a banker. And when it came time to play the game, I think something like 20 people showed up. So essentially they had all of these roles filled, like down to like almost a microcosm of of the actual town. Probably not that much, but there was a referee. Again, that would be David Wesley. I think I'm getting that name right. Yes, David Wesley. And essentially, that referee would adjudicate on different things. And from that original Bronstein, basically. It it almost went off the rails, but everyone had a great time. I think there was a duel and they had to kind of improvise some kind of mechanics for rule systems, so that sets up something that'll be paid off later. Um there was all kinds of social interactions like I think originally each person would have to go to the referee and say what they were doing, but by the by some point in the game, people were just talking to each other in character and that immediately brought in the idea that, you know, I'm playing a character, you're playing a character, and so we're having a conversation. Mm-hmm. And so as much as the game in some respects was a, a bit of a mess, it did throw up this idea that was then played at another Bronstein and or Brownstein. I, I don't the name is always a little bit weird because I've heard it said a few different ways. But uh on the second attempt of this. It was a bit more of a controlled setting, so it was essentially a group of people who were trying to plan a coup against the local government, and Dave Arneson was one of the referees on this, so they would trade off refereeing this game, and it then established the idea of it going for an extended period of time, even though it's it's not an open world yet, but there is this idea that there's a setting, and we basically keep going until the problem gets solved. So then Arneson takes this idea and creates his own setting because he's been, he's been using, or he's familiar with the chainmail rule set. I think what happened is he learned lessons from the idea that there was a duel, that what you need is a man-to-man combat. And chainmail actually has the rules for man-to-man combat. Also, um, Dave Arneson is a big fan of Tolkien, and there are elements of a fantasy world in chainmail. So using chainmail as the basis of the rules and marrying that with the Bronstein format, there's a sort of, oh, this fixes all the bumps in the road that we found when we were doing it the first time. So there's a logical like fit there because the rules map onto that style of play without too much effort. So then he creates his own campaign, which he calls Blackmoor, and Blackmoor is I think it's set in a, in a localized region. Um, I've forgotten what the region's called, but there is a, a kingdom or, yeah, there's a kingdom of Blackmoor in it. And there's a Blackmoor castle, which is one of the features. And essentially, it went for an extended period of time that Arneson then started basically allowing characters to improve over time. And it became more of this open-ended thing where the players would go out, do things, change the world. It still had a lot of the war game in it, but the the clinching point was when they got to the castle. And I believe the way that this goes is that Dave Arneson had this Italian miniature castle, like a, an actual model. And it came with dungeon elements, which is literally just one floor of like rooms as part of its... Like base. I don't know exactly how big this thing was. I can imagine it's sizable enough. Um, or at least to workable enough to the scale of the game they were playing. And they went through the dungeon and apparently everyone had like a blast going through this dungeon and being like, what's in this room? You know, there's this constant sense of discovery in a dungeon crawler. And um they ran out of dungeon. So Arneson's like, well, I don't have any more of these tiles. And I can't see how else we would go, because if you go up into the castle, well, then obviously it's the castle part. So the only logical place that he could go and get more dungeon was down. So then he just started making up layers of dungeon. Um, And then I believe at one of the early Gen Cons, and we're talking like Gen Con 3 or 4, somewhere in that area, probably 3, could have even been earlier than that uh arneson brings this game there to sort of show it off and gary gygax is there because again we're talking about a small world of people and then they end up getting into a conversation with each other and kind of realizing that there's a game here but i mean it's funny to think about how ubiquitous DD and role-playing games are now but they weren't invented yet Or they were just on the cusp of being invented. So even these two guys didn't fully, they weren't sure if this was a thing. So they were like, oh, you know what? This seems cool. Seems like people like this. Let's develop this. Uh, Gary was still developing products through, I can't remember what company he was working through, but I think he was part owner of that. Or yeah, I think he was a part owner of a previous company. And then- one of the founders of that company the, uh, died, and so they ended up settling the rights with his widow and then forming a new company. And so they, had, they hadn't published anything to that, and they were still making war games, and then they created what is TSR now. And from that, they then published original Dungeons and & Dragons. And so that's kind of how we get to the point where we're talking about the system itself. So, uh, Troy, I guess, do you want to give us the rundown after I've been blabbing on?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what happened after all that was Dungeons & Dragons started to take a shape. What would happen is it would go into multiple volumes of these booklets that would become the core game. This was authored, as we were saying, by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, and it was made in such a way as to allow varying degrees of complexity and engagement uh, near limitless campaign potential and there is a lot of room for interpretation even in the rules themselves so as you go through this game you'll find that there is uh, a breakdown of all different types of approaches to fantasy gaming so they talk a lot about this being predominantly a campaign game so the nature of this game is to be played in succession a continual story related events however you can play individual games or as we now call them one shots but the point of the game was to do a campaign and have that endless play and that potential mm-hmm. how um how that manifested was different for every group because something that though we've discussed you know regarding RPGs is there is sort of this like language that exists outside of just the rules for how to run a session how to tell a story and how to hold your players attention that the gms kind of develop personally and share between each other in like a different tradition and it's like every table at this formative stage of the role-playing game would be very different from another table but it would still have these core rules so you'd have um you know, that in common. And the rules were designed to be flexible uh, and adaptable. And the whole recommendation in the book was start slow, start with something that's manageable, and then you can build your campaign over time.
1: Absolutely. There's um, uh, some articles of advice that have been amended into, uh, what was that? The It's uh, Gary Gygax this is a, this is something you can find online, actually, and is I found it extremely helpful to look at.
0: Is it Gygax seventy
1: five? That's the one, Gygax seventy five. And again, that that's um, that's been curated. It does. If you get, I think most versions contain the original articles, but it's basically exactly what you're saying. It's it's a it's a methodology for developing a campaign a spe- that very much fits um, the OD and D style where you you make enough that you can use and then as you play you expand yeah
0: and we'll see that come back into fashion with um osr games later on in in the history of rpgs Mm -hmm. but at that time it was kind of the default gm advice or dm advice you know there wasn't a separate game master's dungeon master's manual at this point so this was kind of the advice you got and I still think that's relevant to, uh, to players and Dungeon Masters today, because what ruins a campaign faster than anything is burnout. And if the GM burns themselves out even before the campaign is started or just right at its inception, it's going to have a major impact on the play. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, maybe we can get into the what what your impression of the system itself
0: is. It's really interesting because it's kind of vague. Yeah. It's all there. You can play it, and the information you need is there, but it 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 isn't as codified as it's later going to be, so you need to take a different approach to reading it mm-hmm. than you later would with rule books probably 3.5 and onward, if you know what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah. Uh, there's definitely, like as you were saying, there's that concept of like... an it, it. When we were looking at chain mail, there was this idea that you, you had to have some rough concept of how a war game would work but i think it would be easier to figure out from the rules as written how to do that without being shown yes um but with even at this stage in dungeons and dragons i feel like it's a game that's being demoed at conventions and this these booklets are effectively a a way of sort of jogging your memory it's more like reference material in some ways. yeah it's not it's not that explore
0: because you've got men in magic which is your first of the three booklets which is covering characters their abilities how they interact kind of the basic foundation of who you're going to play and how you're going to play them yeah uh book two monsters and treasure and that's describing creatures loot and will later help you understand like with that information, how you progress with experience, mm. because experience is interesting. It's based on a combination of the treasure hall. So the gold that you earn, as well as an experience payoff based on the uh, the monster you slay itself. Mm-hmm. So there's this like, they call it a matrix. And you look at this, this equation chart, figure out what is appropriate what applies and then you'll receive your xp from that and they even have again more of that gm advice just put right into the core rules where they say like hey if your player would clock more than one level in an xp payout cut it back and give them only the one level Mm. so it's got some interesting advice that it includes in there too but uh moving on from the monsters and treasures of book two you lastly get to book three the underworld and wilderness adventures and that one sort of tells you actually what you're going to be doing. You know, that's the game. Men in Magic will get you, will like have you make a character. Monsters and Treasure shows you what the monsters are and what the piles of gold you want are. But you, you're not actually doing anything with any of these people until you're in book three, where you're in an environment. Um, it shows you how to write a dungeon, it talks about wanting to have a minimum of three levels once you've got started in your dungeon. Mm -hmm. And it talks about, you don't just want a linear, one, two, three, four, five, et cetera, progression down in, in depth for your dungeon. They talk about having branching directions, different ways to reach the same floor, like through chutes, through stairs, through inclined passageways. So they have these different ways to explore an underground space. And then similarly, they'll go into the wilderness adventure and go into random encounter tables. So when you're making your overland travel towards uh, the castle and dungeon that you're going to explore, you'll be encountered with all types of monsters or, or adversaries. And that's that's kind of where the game is, is in this underworld and wilderness adventure. And it really shows you the root and core of what OD&D is. Mm later dnd is going to be a very different thing but right now it's about you're in a town you get your gear you leave your town you explore an overland region full of danger you then reach a castle that has a dungeon underneath it and you hop in and you go as far as you can you know what what influences your decision to turn back is you know how much treasure you get what the contents of the dungeon are if you've taken any losses but it has a lot of a lot of a, of like a I don't want to use the term because I think it's more of a modern term, but it's almost like there's this like roguelike game loop. You know what I mean? mm Yeah. Like I, I get yeah. Do you totally know what I'm, what I'm trying to mean by that? Mm-hmm. So so it's really interesting. And like other like we said, like later D D will be a very different animal. But in this, this this idea is is really kind of compelling at its core. And um it is sort of Like, once the GM is writing the dungeon and they're adding new levels and they're even having the monsters of the dungeon construct new levels so the dungeon can change on the players between visits, like, you kind of are creating this nearly endless potential and possibility.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've heard it described as like something like a mythical underworld where it doesn't necessarily, the dungeon's almost a creature in and of itself.
0: Yes. There's like a, there's a, I guess another way to describe it is like, there's a fantastical element to the dungeon that doesn't make it just a hole in the ground.
1: Yeah,
2: for sure. Question comes to mind. I was wondering, so when this game was coming around and they're starting to like hand out some of those beginner rule books, how easy would it have been for like a brand new player to get into the game compared to like people who've been already doing war game? Like, was there kind of known rules at the time that you would have applied to this kind of game well there are concessions within
1: um there there are points in the rule book that state using the chainmail system right but it also provides an alternate combat system as well
2: Mm.
1: which i wouldn't say is super fleshed out but it does give you some kind of idea about how you would resolve things uh, it's it's really simple. Uh, again, I think like almost all weapons do like the same or similar damage, um, and some of them might attack faster. But I've I've heard there's like a uh a bit of a a bug that can be exploited in the game with the two dagger treatment because you can hold. A dagger in each hand and it does the same damage as a sword so you technically can attack twice
2: oh okay (laughs)
1: um now once you get a magic sword that might change but it's just funny to think of like your fighting man character running around and just like knifing things
2: right compared to just having a giant two hands so regular hands (laughs) yeah
1: that's typically what we think of like the warrior having or like a battle axe or you know um Oh, so uh, I guess some important things to note, (laughs) Um, important innovations that have held, Uh, we've introduced the polyhedral dice. So that's your D20, your D12, no D10 yet. Um, I think that that was something, I, I remember reading something about how the D20 was actually a D10, but you multiplied the side depending on what color it was i didn't fully understand that but apparently d10s were something that came later oh and then you had your d8 your six and your four and there's a whole story we can get into with uh, a very well-known designer and uh one of the sort of promoters and producers of dice but also of a number of modules luzachi um who basically polyhedral dice existed well obviously in history well before but at this time they were being manufactured i'm not sure if it was taiwan or somewhere probably i think it was probably taiwan but apparently the manufacturing aspect was so limited that he decided to self-manufacture and then so now these dice became more and more available but again that's a whole other thing so this game creates a demand, essentially, for polyhedral dice, which now we take for granted.
0: Well, that was uh, that was also part of what you like as you needed as like a an inventory of parts to be able to play the game was these various polyhedral dice. You you did need the latest edition, as they refer to it, of the Chainmail miniature rules. Yep. So you would also have your three OD and D booklets, and then Secret Booklet Number Four, Answer D, Chainmail. Uh, you would also need graph paper for tracking your overland and your dungeon exploration. And then they did recommend <laughs> like full on drafting tools for the purposes of drawing these things. Yep. But I think some of the characteristic designs of dungeons that we now see as nostalgic today kind of came out of the need to just make dungeons without a whole set of like compasses and drafting tools.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh. Man, thank god for computers at this yeah
0: that's another good point because
1: all of this would have it it'd all have to be hand done um there oh another element actually worth mentioning is they also for overland there are rules for track like you can track graph paper movement and there's a contentious point about this because the scale when you're in a dungeon is one inch is 10 feet but I think outside of the dungeon, it's 20 feet or it might even be more than that. And that got really confusing with people or people got confused, I should say, about how that actually uh, those conversions and like, why is it bigger outside than it is inside? And do I need a different map and all this? And another element that also brings in a game is they recommend using Avalon Hills Wilderness Survival yes. game. yes. Which uses hexes, so then now we've introduced another element, which will be formative, is the idea of the hex crawl,
0: and that's giving us effectively the triforce of what this game system is. You know, you have like your Bronstein influenced playing your individual character that you're managing. You have your chainmail-styled encounters where you're fighting out actual tactical battles in different environments. Mm -hmm. And now you're having a hex-based overland travel system where you're plotting routes, you're considering terrain, you're needing to track resources and expenditure. It's kind of interesting how it took these different games to come together to create what we now know as one game, but this one game... Has sort of grown beyond and out past these things to become a different entity altogether, and other people have inherited what this O.D.D. was at the time. But it's it's really interesting and it's really cool that the term that they used at the time was the referee mm-hmm. uh, was responsible for for creating so much of it. So once you had your basic tools, you had all the equipment you needed. You had your three different or your. I guess we're talking about five different resources now with your three OD and D booklets, your chainmail, and then your Avalon Hill book. So you're looking at a handful of different resources, but once you have all that, the referee is now responsible and able to create and prepare the campaign. So they're creating their maps of the underworld. And like we said, they're starting with a minimum of three levels of depth and then designing hooks to go further and deeper underground. Uh, They're gonna populate the monsters, layout treasures and traps and there's even discussion on traps that's kind of again from that gm perspective where they don't say like hey don't just make a pit of poison spikes for someone to fall and die in because that's not satisfying like make traps that are more um obscure and arcane like the one that i really liked was when you touch this gem it teleports you to a different room Mm. In on the same floor of the dungeon, and you're just like, well, great, I'm in a different room now.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting that that there, there's already that sort of seed of we're not. It, it's really there's this contention that I think is really interesting that runs through the early edition, like I, I would say only uh original Dungeons and Dragons and the first editions, like Basic, Expert, and Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. But there's this thing that runs through it where. People haven't quite parsed out whether this is a cooperative game or a competitive game. It almost sits in this nebulous middle state where like, oh yeah, you, uh, you, you're you trying to be adversarial to your players, but make sure that it's fair or fun. And I think different people interpret that historically in different ways. Like obviously there's some horror stories about murderous GMs and stuff like that. Yes. Uh, referee, referees that go too far or another common one was characters stealing from each other Yep. like the thief when that became a thing stealing stuff from other players in some cases i heard that though the characters were obviously disadvantaged and reacted poorly to that a lot of the players just took that as part of the game i imagine there's some stories where that wasn't the case i can see people getting pretty bitter about that
0: well it's It's very interesting that, um, the roles that players played in the campaign, it hadn't really been defined. Like you had your three main classes of characters and that told you how you were going to interact rules wise, but the whole idea of the four square party and how the party is the party is the limb, you know, or the body, I mean to say Mm -hmm. like that kind of thing, like that that came later. At this stage, there's a little bit more opportunism that the players are exhibiting between each other, I think. Yeah. And um, to kind of move into like the characters now, mm. there were three main classes. There was the fighting men, which is your, that's your fighter, that's your warrior. That is your, someone who's not gifted outside of just having a great physical specimen, if you know what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, The next was a magic user, and they would go through various levels, getting various titles, including Necromancer, Wizard, Sorcerer, right? But they would be the Spellcasting class. And lastly is the Clerics, who are your Divine. And they would go through, again, a series of titles and classes, or a series of titles within the class, I should clarify. And all of these would go 1 to 10, But the book actually is interesting because it says you can go all the way up to 20. You can keep going. They just don't give you bespoke titles for those levels. Mm. But there's nothing mechanically stopping you from epic level play as we'll later know it as. So that's really interesting. But to run down each of these classes a little bit, we've got fighting men. They can use magical weaponry. They've got the most hit dice that's where your character's hit points are determined. So they're gonna be tougher. They've got um, access to typically the highest of the strength stat, as that is their their prime stat, but they're limited in that they cannot use spells.
1: Right,
2: yeah.
0: So, and they also cannot use non-weaponry magic items. So no wands and stuff like that to get around not being able to use spells. Those are some of the limitations, but the fighting men will have good stats, a strong arm, And they'll be able to use weapons very effectively including magical weaponry so once they get you know a blessed weapon they're going to be nuts um some of them are limited like there for example there's the the great warhammer that dwarves can use for example that's a plus three that's Mm. wild Mm -hmm. because that that's something else about this game is the modifiers are tight you don't have these big number modifiers you see in later editions of the game like a plus three is out of control powerful right so that's really interesting um and that's fighting men uh next we have magic users and they kind of follow that initial wizard progression that we we're all familiar with where they start off very weak you know very fragile but then when they reach the upper levels they become obscenely powerful and are not really balanced to the rest of the party per se with what they can do but they have such a journey to get to that stage, it's almost like they earn that. So it's it's an interesting, um, it's a very interesting class. They have a wide range of magical items they can use, but they are limited in their weapons, unless they're an elf, where elves have access to some of the fighting men abilities, but we'll, we'll touch on that later. And with magic users, even though they're really weak at earlier levels, I actually think they're more valuable at their earlier levels in this early DD than the same wizard at level one or two in a later edition of dnd just by the very nature of what you're doing in D, as you're exploring these dungeons and you're exploring them in pretty good detail the cantrips that you have access to are actually valuable in a way that i would argue they're not in later editions mm. when you're just not in the same environments
1: mm-hmm.
0: so a low level wizard is still providing a lot of utility to this this early party in OD d
1: yeah um though they again they do start off quite fragile in fact I would I would from what I can imagine from reading it and stories I've heard they're probably even more fragile than not even the most not even like fifth edition but even some earlier editions that there's been this sort of like how fragile can the wizard actually be <laughs> it's something that's been argued and, and clearly amended over subsequent additions exactly and then oh yeah yeah the 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 last
0: one yeah not to to forget them uh the cleric is your hybrid because they have elements of the fighting man and the magic user they can use magic armor and non-edged magic weapons and that does mean no arrows Mm -hmm. and they also have access to their own divine spells and Something that applies to fighting men and clerics in a really unique way, is they're able to build strongholds at their highest levels. Mm. And they are going to receive income from that through taxation and tithe, as well as they'll be able to receive recruits. And that's a whole other aspect of this game. Uh, Just to kind of tangent myself here briefly, that because it comes from Chainmail, a game where you're handling multiple troops at a time, you're not simply just controlling your POV, your player character, you have all these different troops you're moving around. Mm-hmm. This version of Dungeons & Dragons, this od gives you access to troops, to people that work for you in a way that other editions simply don't even engage with at all. So you can build an army, and it even talks about you wanting to have a band of followers, specialists and even potentially an army as just one player character having that under your name so imagining a party of players at a higher level with bannermen behind them you know they've, they've hired their own alchemists and wizards like it it has a different implication for what you're doing in the very game itself and that's just my little tangent on that but it's really interesting and that's a another aspect of these character classes that other editions don't really show you as you just kind of become more powerful individually in this you become more powerful socially as well it actually has an implication for your 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 level class but also some kind of like implied social class if you know what i'm trying to say
1: yeah you've got you have more um reach in the world because you've garnered respect and uh wealth
0: it's That's like, exactly yeah. it. And then um to kind of hit the last element of this character class system, you can be dwarves, elves, and halflings. Yep. So the dwarves are going to be fighting men of a type. They can go as high as level six, so they, they can't reach ten, so they can become uh, a myrmidon. They have the highest magic resistance. They have really interesting rules for underground movement Mm. that if you were to read them, you would think, why? But if you consider the context of OD&D, where you're spending so much time dungeon delving, these advantages to underground movement and sense become huge to a party. As you can tell, if you're moving underground, like say you're in a slanted passageway, if you don't have a dwarf with you, you might not be able to tell that you're actually proceeding deeper underground. and that is just a level of specific detail that's kind of crazy but very interesting to include. Yeah. And then dwarves also have access to a series of specific languages outside of just their own alignment tongue and the common tongue. They can speak certain monster languages. Right. And then uh we've got elves. Elves are the mix of fighting men and magic users sort of in a different direction than what the cleric represents. They've got magic armor, they've got magic weapons. They, similar to dwarves, can speak monster languages as well, and they can detect secrets that others cannot. Effectively, how it works as they level up is they're picking a class at, at level up if they're going into fighting men or going back into magic user and vice versa. So they're sort of stacking the different levels, and they can go as high as a four in fighting men. And it just makes them such an interesting class because there's nothing like them. They can do multiple things in multiple directions, they sort of have that that majesty that the classic fiction about elves sort of implies, you know? This game leans more to that. So again, you might argue that in the party, the balance is is not thought of the same way as we would think of it nowadays, where every player character can throw a stone as far as any other player character. Mm -hmm. It's like in this setting, elves kind of can, if you build an elf right, they can do things no one else can do.
2: Yeah. So the elf is almost like the original multi or dual class, it seems. It, the way they it kind of kind built of, out.
1: Yeah, it introduces that idea for sure. Yeah. Uh
2: it, it does.
1: The uh and then it's interesting, like we'll we'll obviously get to the halfling, which is an interestingly fairly simple thing.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's it's basically a fighting man. With magic resistance like a dwarf and better missile weapons. And it doesn't even explain how they're better at missile weapons. It just says, hey, read chainmail for how these guys are better at missile weapons. Yeah. So <laughs> it's weird how it's just so reliant on chainmail. Yeah. But it's 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 interesting and it lets you play a halfling. Again, they can only go to level four and be a quote, a hero. Uh they can't get beyond that, but it's very inspired by the Tolkien fiction and you know the lord of the rings and the hobbit and it's really uh it's really cool that you can do them but they're definitely the simplest and again in terms of party balance they're the the little brother of the team you might say
1: yeah they don't seem super effective i don't know if um i i do know that i think in the original printing of the game they were actually called hobbits and i think because of some unlicensed tolkien board games that tsr released uh the tolkien estate took notice of that and they had to change
0: oh interesting okay
1: yeah i think they released some um tolkien like lord of the rings battle games so they basically made a packaged i think it's like an avalon hill style package game that's like one of them is like Helm's Deep. And, in Battle
0: of Five you know, Armies, yeah, I'm familiar with this. Battle of Five Armies. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. The, the, these sort of pre-packaged things. And I think not so much Dungeons & Dragons because it's hard to kind of... You'd have to crack the book open to see it. But I'm pretty sure any estate lawyer looking in a game store and then seeing recognized property on the, on the game box is going to be like, hold on. <laughs> so then let me... I should dig more into this. Or
2: it could have been like... A member of the actual Tolkien estate. But um uh, the, oh go ahead. Is the concept of is the concept of the thief class not even a thing in so this edition? I can I can fill in exactly where that comes in. That is
1: not in this edition. Mm. So you are you are correct. It doesn't come pre-packed with this, but I believe I think and again I can't verify this, but I believe I believe some college students, I don't remember from where specifically, contacted Gary and sort of gave him their idea of a thief class which may have also been inspired by say Bilbo from uh The Hobbit because obviously he's the burglar uh and there's a there's a sort of seed of something in that but um Gary then prints up in and this is the this shows I don't know if I, I really want to emphasize the the weird, Small community bespoke game that this is, because as Troy was saying, we essentially have this jerry-rig mass of other games that are sort of strung together with this three booklet set, and there's implications of like I think they have like suggestions in newsletters about where you can get miniatures in order to aid these things, and this is sort of like you got to have your finger on the pulse of this if you're part of it, and. We can touch on the West Coast scene, which is a an interesting takeoff of that. But one of those newsletters is where Gary—I think it's called the Great Plains Game Player Newsletter—is mm. where the Thief originally gets written. And it—I don't have the specific breakdown of the Thief here. I—I'm it'd be great to actually find like a PDF copy of that of that document but because i i love collecting stuff like that but um the the thief is essentially i i think they might be a little stronger than the wizard or the magic user character but essentially they have these very specific skills that key off of a certain chance of succeeding and as they progress those skills and much I guess modeled after the idea of the dwarves ability to detect sloping passages and this sort of like dungeon awareness. I mean, this is very much a dungeon game. I think that's an important thing. There is a very specific, even towns aren't very well described. Uh, Not until like you get to um, later modules, like the village of Hamlet is an actual town example even included i think it's it's almost like yeah there's a town but anyway to get back to the point the the thief skills essentially are really specific to dungeoneering like dungeon exploration itself it's like climb disarm trap like there aren't any skills that are like negotiation skills social skills aren't you know i think they just assume like following the brown the brownstein model is that you just kind of act that out you kind of you just play it out in role play essentially but even that's not expressly said in the rules so you can imagine all forms of the way people interpret that um and gary was pretty cool at the uh, you know like when he was making these games people would like write him letters and call him up like and he would you know people be like oh i've got you know, I I don't know what this part of the rules means. And it's like, okay, well, what do you think it should be? Or how did you rule it at the table? And he would say, yeah, that's, that probably works. He might give a suggestion, but essentially he was very like loose about it. Like, I don't know any more about this than you do. Like we're, <laughs> I, the, I think he was really expressing the idea that the referee, and this goes back as far as, and Troy, you can Probably give a point to this, but the referees' fiat in decision making goes back as far as like Kriegspiel.
0: 100, it does.
1: Like where like the <laughs> the fact that like a lot of the people running like a Kriegspiel game, it's it's there's a notorious part where after a while they just stop, like they just start making stuff up based on their actual battlefield experience or their experience in running the game itself. So I think that there's, there's this sort of, um, there's a cultural milieu that runs through this community where it's very DIY. It's very small scale. Again, things are coming out in newsletter. I mean, it it was a pretty big deal. I think the only gaming magazine that was really around and it it really didn't start that long after or, or pardon me before was the space gamer. And it was dedicated to these sort of, Avalon Hill SPI-styled sci-fi games. Uh, there was a particular game I think it was inspired to produce a newsletter about. But then very quickly, when Dungeons & Dragons started taking off, they started including articles in the Space Gamer for Dungeons & Dragons, which is ostensibly a fantasy game. We can talk about the, um, the high weirdness and the science fiction elements in Dungeons & Dragons that was like in early parts of it. And actually, a lot of that is because of Arneson. Actually, it's funny. The theming of Dungeons & Dragons is very much Arneson because I think I get the sense that he's the one that brought in a lot of the Tolkienisms. But he's also the one that brought in a lot of like the weird sci-fi stuff that you'd see in some modules. Or at least he's one of those source points. Whereas I think Gary was a bit more he was a bit more into like Elric and Conan. He was more of a sword and sorcery guy. Um, but obviously he had included Tolkien stuff. He knew about it and obviously he saw value in putting it in.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: But yeah, it's, it's important to kind of get your head around like how much of this is spread by word of mouth, by conventions. And, you know, like to go back to what you're saying, Troy, there's almost an unspoken sort of oral tradition that honestly stays with a lot of role-playing games even today. Like I think. We've done a better job of explaining in rule books what the role of the GM is, but unless you've actually seen it done, it's really hard to get your head around that.
0: I fully agree. I mean, I think a huge part of the role playing experience is seeing it in action in a way that you don't need with some board games, some war games, some of these other. You know, hobby games, you don't need to have it demoed to you in quite the same way that a role playing game asks for, just because of the roles that the different players embody at the table, it's it's so much easier to communicate that through through example and for me in my first experience with AD&D not OD&D but what came after you know it was watching you know another player take on the role of GM and then run a session for us that I really kind of understood for the first time like hey what does any of this mean but without seeing it it just all felt like it was magic like none of it Felt like oh, you can tell stories with this. How does any of that work? Not until I played a session with the GM and actually had that that experience did it all click.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really good when like younger kids get into that. I I think the best age is somewhere between ten and twelve because you're kind of you're used to the make believe idea, but now you've you've advanced that make believe idea, and that makes the concept. But like. That's good for players. But you're right. When it comes to like running the game and like what like well who am I playing? I'm like, well you're playing everyone who's not these people and pointing to the players. Exactly. In this instance. Uh, that that's like a really odd idea. It's like you're sort of the author or the narrator and there's a certain kind of adjudication that comes like you know like you have to as I said there there's some conflict and and confusion in the actual running of the early part of these games is to like how adversarial is the dungeon master to the players. Like this is a I I would say ideally it's cooperation. And then you, your, your, your goal as GM or referee, if we're going with the older term, yes, is to provide an entertaining experience. Now, in order to be entertaining, you provide an element of challenge, and narrative opportunity. But that, as I said, is part of that oral tradition. You don't really like just reading the rules. You don't get, oh yeah, I'm not trying to kill the players necessarily. They may die by virtue of like, if you're taking on, if you're playing a a band of goblins fighting the heroes, well, the role of the goblins is the goblins want to win. So you're not going to pull your punches but you're not just the goblins either. And you're also wanting your friends to succeed. It's like, yeah, these guys are going to get you, but I hope you beat them.
0: I totally agree. And I think that's something that can be lost, you know, in some interpretations of the role of the referee. Mm. But it's like a challenging cooperation where you're meant to push the players, not necessarily break them, unless that's like the agreed intent of the game experience. Like if you're playing a horror game, maybe break and kill your players. But if you're playing sort of like sword and sorcery, your characters should sweat and bleed, but they shouldn't necessarily just, like we said earlier, fall into poison death traps.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's even written so that they're clearly aware that you're trying to sustain an entertaining experience. It's not like eliminate players as quickly as possible to win.
0: Yeah, like there are later dungeon crawl board games like Descent, that will literally make that the game experience for the the referee style player but in this that's not the point so i I don't know i think it's a lot more fun when there's like this kind of wink wink between the players and the gm like oh are you gonna make it maybe you will you know as opposed to just like well here's a giant that just killed half your party in one strike sorry
1: yeah like you know and i i set up like unsurmountable odds so that i the gm could
2: win and it's like well that's obviously not the point yeah exactly just kind of want to bring it back to when you're you know for like character building yeah yeah, creation uh how did ODD handle alignment
1: ah yeah um yeah troy do you want to start that off
2: so we're
0: talking about alignment yeah so there are three alignments in this early state uh they apply to characters Monsters, creatures, like the inhabitants of the game world are going to fall under these alignments. And they are uh, the big three law, neutrality, and chaos. So, under law, you're going to have, you know, men and halflings, uh, treants, you know, some of these still more distinguished characters, perhaps. Uh, Under neutrality, men show up again and they're going to keep showing up. But you're also going to have pixies, dryads, griffins. So as you're seeing, there's different elements that are making up these things. It's not like, oh, all monsters are chaos because they're just monsters. Like They actually filter into the different alignments in really interesting ways. And then in, lastly, we've got chaos, which, hey, men show up again. But here we have elves. We've got dwarves. We also have some of the classic chaos characters like orcs and goblins and ogres are going to show up there um and then you got things like dragons shamira's minotaurs giants so there's a lot that shows up under chaos maybe more than the others and some like men show up under multiple but it's these alignments that help govern the interactions between the player characters and the various characters they're going to meet in the world and there are also what help indicate your alignment, language as well. And that's something that you're going to know in addition to your common language or any monster languages that you know.
1: Right. And as I understand when... So there's not a lot of clarification to that point. Um, But I think in when Gary was able to... When he was asked to clarify what alignment language was, he essentially equated it to like... A religious language like latin that makes sense um it's just interesting that it's it's kind of vague because it's i guess it's sort of going off of the the more idea of alignments being almost like a belief system
2: yeah
0: they're really foundational to the world view of the characters does that make sense yeah th- and th- it so. would and people who share an alignment in some ways Perhaps share similar characteristics or world viewpoints, and maybe have something in common they can communicate with that's kind of how I always saw it
1: yeah there's a there's a, a sort of uh a language in the sense that you're coming from the same um viewpoint
0: yeah, and the alignment system it's because it's simpler, I think it's less controlling or restrictive over what you see a character doing Mm. like a lawful character isn't the same thing as a lawful good character you know what i mean there's there's different room for interpretation of what someone on law could could be doing as opposed to getting more drilled down with your alignment so i don't know i like how they handle it in this i think uh the law neutrality chaos is a cool spectrum it's very classic fantasy, shows up in a lot of the Appendix N material, mm. you know what I mean, that influences all of this work.
1: Yeah, and for those that are not familiar with the concept of Appendix N, this is essentially the inspirational material that was included in one of the appendices of the of the book. So essentially, it's like a further reading element.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, so jumping over to... Uh, ability scores or abilities so we've got the introduction of the six core abilities which have seemingly never changed since the inception of the game uh the the method is the very first classic method 3d6 in order to determine and i don't know that any particular order i guess the order that they're listed in the book which are strength intelligence wisdom constitution dexterity and charisma and i think the thing that i thought was really interesting i'm not sure troy what your like take on these but that the description for these abilities is really vague yes like they'll tell you what class primarily uses it and a few like it functions as this but it's it's very assumptive in like strength you know strength like this It's like, it's like you kind of should understand what that means.
0: Yeah. They tell you constitution is your health and hardiness, and they sort of leave it at that. They don't, it's again, it's part of that whole idea that like, Hey, referee, figure it out. So there's that implication that you as the, as the game master, dungeon master will be using these attributes almost in your own way, as opposed to the specific way they tell you. Mm Mm-hmm. In ad- or I should say in addition to the specific way they tell you.
1: Yeah, I mean... Yeah, under Constitution, is like... As an example, Constitution is combination of health and endurance. Uh, it will influence such things as the number of hits which you can take... Which can be taken and how well that character can withstand being paralyzed, turned to stone, etc. So yeah, it's barely a paragraph of information. It does give you... I guess embedded in it there is a sense of what you need to know. But yeah, like the one that gets the most detail is charisma strangely enough. Um which is weird because there aren't specific checks for say like negotiation or deception or anything you would see in a in a modern or more modern game. But it does detail the idea of followers. So, different charisma scores increase the number of followers and their loyalty. That's right. Which which I guess you can kind of get us into the idea of, I mean, and this comes from chain mail, but there's an adoption of morale checks.
0: Yes, there is. Like, th- there's actually a blind check that the player is not supposed to know to determine the loyalty of your character. And if they are someone who is will say, encouraged to be loyal. They've been given danger pay. They're treated well. They'll get a modifier to their role. Uh, otherwise, they might get a penalty if you're constantly thrusting them in harm's way or if you're disrespectful towards them. Uh, and again, this is... This is referee discretion, so they're they're interpreting the player's actions and, and seeing how this might work. Then they'll roll on the table. Uh, if they roll the lowest outcome, it literally means this guy's going to run away at the first opportunity. But if they roll the highest outcome, which you can only get on a modifier because it's a 3d6 roll. Mm. So if you roll a 19 or greater, so triple six plus, they'll actually become a a lifelong loyal follower of yours and never test morale again. So there's a lot of very interesting um, little details that come with that morale system, but you're absolutely right. It comes out of chainmail, and it's part of what makes the non-player characters interesting, not just these empty shadow figures. They're actually a little more interesting because they'll have reaction rules and morale rules and that'll help determine what they do. And then like you said, with your charisma, that is determining the number of followers you can have. And not just like strong arms. Like you can hire as many mercenaries as you can reasonably afford and command. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like alchemists and clerics and blacksmiths and you know people who have very specific skills that's based on your charisma score so depending what you have is how many you can you can acquire and then you'll be have to pay them uh, an upkeep to maintain them so that's kind of a higher level play thing but it's very interesting that you would effectively be anticipating and expected to take on followers as your character and have a little retinue that you drag around with you in your adventures.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, and then I guess we can go down to the equipment. So there's a whole range of the weapons that we would expect. There's, you know, uh, swords, they've got pole arms, halberds that, that I remember that there's a uh, Gary had a particularly weird obsession with pole arms. <laughs> that in some later supplements he would list like every type of pole arm you could imagine and like a brief description of how it was used and i don't know in dungeons and dragons how useful that is but um certainly in a war game i mean i think he was just nerding out and i get that um but yeah you have your daggers your two-handed swords you've got your bows your crossbows you have a variety of mounts yeah um, that's right wagons carts saddlebags which in a dungeon game are very important because there is always a question of how do you get the loot home well it's and carrying it like by hand i mean a uh, a diligent referee is going to make that hard for you if you try to do that
0: cuz encumbrance is a whole thing like details on how much equipment and treasure you can carry and the effect of carrying too much that's a huge huge thing and mm. there's even conversion tables on weights and equivalents for how much different items weigh and how they'll affect your encumbrance so it's it's kind of it's not overwhelming because it's the point yeah if the point was something else then perhaps you'd look at encumbrance and say why are we tracking this but the point is to literally know what can you haul out of a dungeon with your own hands so it's important to have that level of detail in that regard and again like we've said multiple times other editions will do this differently will ignore it other games will pretend it never happened but in this game there's a lot of reason why it's here
1: yeah i mean as as we said this is a dungeon game yes it is dungeon exploration is the main focus most any other element of the game like the the wilderness travel and the the town are more how you get to the dungeon and where you spend the money. Um, and not beyond that. I, and again, it's vague, but like the dungeons where the business is had, um, to that point, there are items, uh, of equipment, which are very, very, uh, specific to certain things. Good examples are 10 foot poles. Oh, every inch is 10 feet. So you use the 10 foot pole to check for traps that are ahead of you or you know like like it's it's almost a gamified way of approaching it mirrors for looking around the corners iron spikes for propping doors open or closed because most doors close if you know like they're they're assumed to close once you go through them that's right uh things like wolfsbane and uh, belladonna like i assume belladonna for poisoning like animals food wolfsbane similar idea this holy water silver crosses wooden crosses so i imagine that's kind of the idea of the holy symbol yes but yeah it's just i want to say the equipment on beyond the weapons and and carrying stuff is very the way it reads is very made to order like these were things that may have been worked out in blackmore as a way of like What's the best thing for going through these weird dungeon spaces? That's right. And and then they became canonical, and now in every edition of Dungeons and Dragons, there's there's this list of stuff, and sometimes it even adds things:
0: call trips, ten foot poles. Yeah. Um, what do they call grappling hooks?
1: I think they don't include block and tackle, but that's a that's something that comes up if you're pulling something up a vertical space. Yeah, you're gonna need something to winch.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: Yeah, and uh, then there's denominations of... I think they have denominations of money. Is that... Or maybe that's... No, I don't know that they could get into that.
0: I think it's just gold.
1: Yeah, I think it's, they just talk in terms of gold.
0: It changes later, as we all well know. But for this, it's it's doubloons. Yeah. Fat, thick gold coins. Basically. And they ca- they weigh a lot. So it's a lot, it's a lot of trouble to, to lug them around. But that's how... That's how you level up. Yeah, like for sure. The number of experience points you're getting is the amount of gold you're bringing. Yeah, and
1: and it's it's not just finding it. You have to haul that stuff out. Yeah, like you, you have to secure it.
0: You can't just find it and tap it like tag it out. I've got the gold. I leveled up. No, you, you <laughs> need to bring it out on the back of a donkey or or with your your followers because that's a big reason you would you would get hire ons or um, hirelings. Pardon me is you would be seriously getting them to carry your loot out.
1: Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, I mean, I guess that that's essentially the gist of it. There's a number of tables for converting, different uh, dice modifiers. but
0: And you got your spell tables for your magic users, for clerics. Yep. Um, and they also talk about how magical research works with developing new spells or effects, and um, how to contain spells in a book of spells. But that's like a long form explanation of a lot of the systems that you're going to find in this game. What you see later is different interpretations of these core concepts, but this is where they appear for the first time. This is how they happen. And a lot of them, like the ability scores, are practically unchanged, just defined in more detail now.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the same idea for sure. So let's move on to uh, the impact of the game and like what falls out from this. So I guess the the first things that come to mind are more booklets. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep, absolutely. So this is not
1: this this isn't the end of the the publications even within the first development of the of the game. Uh, you have the Greyhawk campaign setting, which is effectively Gary Gygax's Blackmore equivalent. So it's it's his campaign setting. Um, but even that booklet, when you go through it, and it's been a while since I've actually been, since I've read it, but I remember it details more like rules and options and additions and isn't so much focused on the setting as using the setting as an example. Right. Um, Gary had a particular thing about, he wasn't, an early TSR in general, wasn't that interested in producing like modules in fact other companies or other companies i should say other individuals and some of them founded companies started doing that first so the idea of like oh a pre-packed adventure then you know this this is your tomb of elemental evil and and that sort of thing that that really gary assumed that you were going to make your own thing up because he made this for himself. He assumes you have the same needs. We now know that actually a lot of people want the pre-written thing because they just want to pick it up, read it, and then run it. They don't want to sit there and, and put the thing together. I mean, there are people, I'm that kind of guy, that I like making my own thing. But honestly, even just having for like a, a thing of ideas is is great to have. But there was none of that. Um the closest thing to a full campaign setting that came out at this time was Empire of the Petal Throne, which is, I, it wasn't even made by the core members, and eventually kind of became its own, it, it really almost simultaneously became its own system, but it was very much like, oh, this is, um, so it's the setting of Tecumel. And I won't get into too much detail of this, but this is the closest thing. It's also, it's it's like a science fantasy setting, I suppose. It has this idea of like an ancient, you know, civilization and then this stuff. But it, it also brings in these elements that will keep popping up through early editions of D&D where there's like ray guns and spaceships. It's a Empire of the, of the Petal Throne is a lot more subtle about that but that stuff is still there. right? And then from, I don't know if there's any other supplements or additions that you can think of that came out at this time.
0: There was Blackmore, Greyhawk, Empire of the Petal Throne. And those are the big ones that come to my mind. It wasn't until the next editions, yeah. uh, when we get into AD&D that we're really going to see things open up. And there's going to be different branch points from OD&D from this point onward into new directions these are going to answer different questions so to speak yeah but um we are going to see bx a d and d uh coming out of that we're then going to get into the end of the current shepherds of Dungeons and dragons as new corporate overlords take over and become the the responsible parties and a lot happens you know that we will cover in future episodes but for right now OD&D set off this domino effect that took different paths took different branch ways different gaming groups in different countries interpret it differently like we'll cover British RPGs soon and you'll see how different those are than um their American counterparts if you know what I'm trying to say
1: yeah
0: 100% so there's lots that that came out of this and what I think is really important to note is like this was almost like an idea that that no one had had yet, but as soon as it had been had, all of a sudden it it caught a fire in all these imaginations. all these different people were now able to engage with this concept this this unique style of storytelling, unique style of storytelling. Thank you and I don't know um it's really it's it's really remarkable
1: yeah, the seed is definitely planted at that point. And, like, uh, other, like, obviously TSR is going to go on to make other games. Uh, One of the early ones that probably come out shortly after this was um, Metamorphosis Alpha, Mm. which is a very weird game. Essentially, they're trying to fill the niche of a sci-fi game. Right. Um, And and that one has some unique aspects in that there's no levels in it. It's entirely equipment-based. Oh, cool. And you're stuck in a Generation Starship, which serves as a dungeon, that you can never leave.
0: Oh, that's neat.
1: So, that's that's a whole thing and we might do an episode on the 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 genealogy of Metamorphosis Alpha and how that turns into Gamma World eventually.
0: Right.
1: And there's all kinds of stuff that falls out of that. And then they would also go on to make Boot Hill, which is another game that I think we definitely should talk about uh later. Absolutely. Which is Again, it's it's almost it's a skirmish game, but it's also a role-playing game. It's it's, it's one of those middle ground things.
0: It has the same roots as this thing, so I totally
1: get that. And then other companies are picking up and maybe that's uh one of the if not the next episode, then certainly one coming up is talking about Tunnels and Trolls, which is essentially the first spin-off, like the first non-TSR role-playing product that is essentially someone looking at This rule set and saying, I could make this better, which is essentially the impetus for every role playing game till now, (laughs) is somebody being like, "Yeah, I like that idea, but I'm gonna do it like this."
0: Yep, hundred percent.
1: Yeah, I guess that's. I mean, it opens up everything. Like, just I don't think we could cover the full impact of this game because it is the game. I mean, it because we also talk about war games. You could kind of uh it sort of lay some impact on that scene going forward?
0: It definitely does. Like well, role-playing and war games were sort of they weren't different yet. You know, they weren't seen as separate ideas. Mm. So even the first edition of Warhammer Fantasy Battles has so much role playing in its DNA. And that is something we're gonna cover as our next episode, is we're gonna go in and we're gonna let you know the history and impact, origins, the guts of the game of Warhammer fantasy battles, that original take on rank and flank big blocks crashing into each other and smacking each other about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the idea of the fantasy element really does spur out of Dungeons and Dragons. I guess chainmail to some degree, but that wasn't really
0: Yeah, like War, Warhammer Fantasy kind of was like a different was sort of a, a codifying and a different take on the fantasy and, and locking it in a little more than the the freeform fantasy plus myth plus sci-fi that O D D had involved in, you know, had incorporated. Like Warhammer sort of took its own take on it, so I, I really look forward to giving a little bit of a dive on that and, and getting in to what made that unique. And I mean, that itself launched its own huge wave of of other games and a history of of its own you know lifespan as a product. So there's a lot to dive in on that as well.
1: Absolutely. So yeah, we will we'll, we'll settle into that on our next episode. Um, yeah, and then. I don't know, like what's your own experience with Dungeons and Dragons briefly before we uh, sign things off here?
0: I played a D and D in grade school in about second third grade. me and a friend where the we were the halfling add-ons to an older brothers campaign. So we just sort of sat around and tried to tried to do silly things, but it showed me how GMs worked. It showed me how a party interacted. I had been looking at RPG books before then with big eyes, never sure what they were talking about, but certain I wanted a part of it. And getting in on that first game was really excited and um, really helped me launch into the hobby world. Um, It was a couple years after that that I um, got a copy of the Games Workshop 95 holiday catalog. And that really did me in as a miniature wargamer for the rest of my life. But um, I did technically start with RPGs, and it was AD&D that I played first.
1: Yeah, um, my own experience is watching my uncle and one of my cousins and some of his friends like play Second Edition. Oh, cool! Which isn't super different, and I would say. Yeah, basically just being the young kid at the table, like, looking at the thing. I didn't really get to play it until 3rd Edition, which I essentially played with, uh, like, uh Jay was in that gaming
2: group. and Yeah, that was my first experience playing 3rd yeah, Edition. We, one of our friends picked up a campaign, and we played it. I so. remember just wandering
1: so. into it. We were playing it. The person who was hosting the game, one of our schoolmates, lived on a boat, and... It was just sort of happening there, like wandered in and then later on it became like a regular thing. And that was from what I didn't realize it until much later, but
2: that that edition had basically only just come out. Like Yeah, that was like early two thousands, I think.
1: Yeah, like it, it was barely a year old at that point. Um Yeah, and then essentially been hooked on it. I've got into other games pretty quickly. I remember enjoying some of the White Wolf games and stuff like that. But yeah, D&D was, I I mean, like many people, it's the starting point. That's right.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's Tales and Tactics. We certainly appreciate you listening along as we discussed OD&D. Please tune in with us next time as we get into the history of Warhammer Fantasy Battles, the classic rank and flank big battle game from Games Workshop. Thanks again and have an excellent rest of your day.